Welcome to the Burning Hearts Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us this week. This week's sermon is taught by Pastor Adam Reed from Antioch Church in the Phoenix Valley. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for letting me come. What a treat. When Miss Jane asked me, I said, yes, please. Well, what I understand is that you guys have been talking about the early church in Acts. Is that correct? I'm not too far off there. So I felt like in prayer, um, so I think what we do at Antioch is probably very similar to what you guys do here, which is we hear God, we obey God, and we repeat that over and over again for the rest of our lives. That is what it means to walk with Jesus. It's not this religious activity, but it's this, I want to have a relationship with Jesus to I learn how to cultivate a life of hearing him and obeying him. And so when I was preparing this week, it was really cool because I was, I was waiting on the Lord, not knowing that you guys were in Acts. Uh, and I'm actually reading this morning from Acts, but uh, what I was being stirred by was how the early church adopted the DNA of Jesus. So what do I mean by the DNA of Jesus? What they did was in, in the book of Acts, when the early church erupted after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit filled the believers and gave them a power to live overcoming of sin and death and to live victorious, they didn't just say, okay, like we, we can just do it one day at a time, or one time, but we do it one day at a time. And what they did was they emulated their life after Jesus. So Jesus wasn't just God. Jesus was 100% man. And so when we look at Jesus, we don't just look at him as, oh, he can do, like, yeah, he's perfect. He didn't mess up. He didn't sin because he's, he's God. We can actually look at him and say, this is what a perfect example of a human being lives in right relationship with the Father. So when we look at Jesus, we can say, this is how we ought to emulate our lives. And so that's what the early church of Acts did. They said, well, what did Jesus do? And then they would just start to do it. And so, well, Jesus healed the sick. Well, let's go heal the sick. Jesus, you know, Jesus walked with confidence, but humility. Let's walk with confidence, but let's be humble. And today, what I want to talk about is, I want to talk about what does it mean to love like Jesus? How did Jesus love? Because Jesus loved very differently than any other ruler or leader or human being prior to him or basically in front of him. We're now just trying to catch up and look like Jesus every day. But Jesus loved radically different. And so that's what I felt like the Lord was talking. And I actually felt like he was giving me this, this stirring of how the early church adopted it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump in today about loving like Jesus. But I, I do want to be sober-minded because relationships are awesome and relationships can be hard. Like, you know, you think about the guy gets the girl that's what like all the romantic comedies are about, right? Or um, the buddies do the road trip and they have the adventure or just the different dynamics of relationships that are beautiful. But we also know uh, the girl breaks up with a guy sometimes or, or divorce happens um, or friends uh, betray us and, and things can be painful in life. Um, we know that statistics say that over 50% of people get divorced. And that's no different within the church as it is outside the church, which tells us right out of the bat that the church doesn't actually approach relationships quite different than the world, which is a problem. We want to look at relationships differently than the world does. We want to, we want to get the lens of Jesus, the eyes of Jesus, and say, how do you love? How do you approach relationships? And teach us how to do the same. So if we, if, I mean, if we just look at statistics, we just know that like 80% of people within their lifetime will experience traumatic experience of those 80%, the vast majority are perpetrated by another individual, of which that other individual is usually a close friend or family member. So people hurt people. Relationships are hard. Yet, there's this 
constant beckoning of Jesus to say, love like me. So how does he do it? What does he say? What is his approach? And how do we adapt it into our lives? We don't want to just be hearers of, good, of the good word. We want to be doers of it. So what does it say? And then what do we do about it? And so what I want to do is, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me. We're going to go to Matthew 22. We're going to jump around a couple different scriptures this morning, but this is going to be the main one. And one reason why, as, we, as you turn there, one reason why we need to so be diligent about getting God's perspective versus the world's perspective is that if you're wronged by somebody, it is not that hard to get other people in your boat to point fingers at that person. Our world loves to do that. Have you seen the news lately? Like, good grief, like the Kavanaugh stuff and the political stuff and everything else that's going on. People want to point fingers at everybody. It's everybody else's fault. There's this whole idea. If you were, if you were being victimized, it is not hard to get people to want to jump in your boat and just demonize whoever's doing, the, whoever's doing the attacking. I'm not justifying if you've been abused or mistreated. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying it's not hard to get people to complain with you, right? And so what do we see in Scripture? What's going on? And this is actually where I want to start, and you might be surprised. It's Matthew 22. I'm going to go 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, So I'm going to pause. Sorry, we just started. So basically what's going on is there's a bunch of people, there's the disciples, and there's a bunch of religious leaders hanging out. And this happens often where they, the the Sadducees, which are religious leaders, and the the Pharisees, which are religious leaders, they would try to come and confront and debate and kind of one-up Jesus. Uh, They would constantly get stumped by him and get frustrated by him. And this is just another example where this happens. But basically they're always trying to to discredit disqualify or disprove Jesus as, as the authority. Does that make sense? So that's what's going on here. So hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so he just won up the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, so the law is the, the Torah, it's the first five books of the Bible. It's, it, it's you know, the very beginning of the Bible is the law. That's what they know and they've memorized it. These, these people have memorized all first five books of the Bible. So when they say they're experts, it's not like they've read it a few times. They've absorbed it into their lives where they know it better than anybody else in their, in their society. So he's an expert in the law. Test him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And second, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what happens in this dialogue is they're trying to one-up Jesus, and they're trying to see if they can get him to screw up and say something silly, right? And they say, hey, what's the most important thing in life? Like, what is the, the most important thing? And I just want to pause and say, when the greatest, which is Jesus, he's the greatest. When the greatest wants to tell us something that's the greatest, we might want to pay attention. Like, we might be like, okay, if the greatest says something's great, we, gotta, we might want to just know what, what it's about and how, what do we do about it. And so the greatest of all time says, this is the greatest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He's referencing Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Pharisees and the Sadducees would have had this memorized. So when they hear this, they're probably like, that's a good answer. Yeah, we agree with that, Jesus. Well done, you know? They would have, they would have, been, they would have approved of this, right? Like, that's good, okay. But like Jesus always does, he one-ups it. He, that, I mean, this is what he does throughout scripture, throughout his life, throughout his ministries. You know, we say murder, you know, hate is just as bad as murder. You say, you know, adultery, lust is just as bad as adultery. He always one-ups things. And this is what he says. And he says, and Jesus replied, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, 
And he says, and this is the first and greatest commandment. And he says, and second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And verse 39, that word like it is actually a Greek word, homoios, if I'm saying it right, H-O-M-O-I-O-S. That word means equivalent to, like uh, unseparable. So what he's saying here to these, these Sadducees and Pharisees, these religious leaders, he's saying this is the peanut butter and jelly of the kingdom. He's saying you can't have one without the other or it's incomplete. He says you cannot say that you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul if you do not love other people. And he says you can't actually say that you fully love other people if you don't love God. Like these things are completely contingent upon one another. Well, the Pharisees, this is not okay with them because they've built their entire career off of looking down their nose at how they're better than everybody else. So this is when they're like start to plot and scheme on how they're going to kill Jesus. Because they're like, oh, well, you're, hold on. Like, you're, you're telling me I'm out of step with what is perfection? And that's what they've been pursuing their whole entire lives. They're bred to be these, like, religious leaders from, from youth. They go through these schooling systems from, from birth. They're selected so that they're better than everybody else. And she's like, actually, no, you're, you're on the same level as everybody else. We're all a mess in need of Jesus. <laughs> we're all in this room. We're all a mess in need of Jesus. And we're called to do these two things, and they're, they're completely inseparable. If we want to love God with our whole heart, we have to love people. The problem is, is when you start to do a study on this word neighbor, it's not talking about just like your next door neighbor. Or it's not talking about your family. And it's not just talking about some of your friends that you're, that you're similar to and that are easy to love. It's talking about everyone. The Bible commands us to love everybody. That bothers me. Because there's people I don't want to love. Am I the only one? Like, there's people that are hard to love. So how in the world can Jesus tell us, if we want to love like him, we can't just love him, but we have to love everybody? I'm like, God, like, that's kind of unfair. I'm not very good at that. And so I've been digging in. I've been trying to figure out what in the world is he doing? What in the world is he trying to tell us? And there's some examples that he gives. In Matthew 25, he says this, starting in verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then all the disciples, all the righteous people around him were like, when did we do that? And he says, the king replied, truly I tell you, whatever you do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you do for me. He's reinforcing this idea that we cannot say that we love him if we don't love other people. And we practice loving him as we practice loving other people. Jesus doesn't just tell us what right philosophy or theology to have. He actually models it. He embodies it. The Bible actually calls Jesus love. He himself is love. In 1 John three sixteen, it says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Right there is the commandment. So the first thing that we see, and there's just two major things I'm hitting on today, to love like Jesus. The first thing that we see, and this is, both these are very hard. So I just want you to know this. This is not, in our flesh, the natural default response that we will have as human beings. This is why what we need is a supernatural encounter with Jesus to soften our hearts and teach us how to receive his love because we're not gonna love people well if we don't know how to receive it in the first place. We only give away what we get from God. 
So if you already are struggling in this room with just understanding the father heart of God, his, his kind nature, his goodness, the, I mean, he describes himself as a father who gives good gifts. He says, you know, you ask for a, a snake or a stone and some examples he gives. He's like, no, like, I'm, or he asks for some bread, I'll give you a snake or a stone. He says, no, like, I give you good gifts. I'll give you the best bread. I'll give you yummy bread. I'll give you abundance of bread. Like he's, he says, uh, he, he's benevolent is the word that it uses. He's benevolent in his nature. He longs to lavish his love on us. The problem is, is that we sometimes in our own, this side of heaven, life experience is we've been wounded. We've been wounded maybe by our natural fathers, our natural mothers, our natural authority. And then we project that wound on God and say, you must be the same. Or my dad abandoned me, you'll probably abandon me too. I can't trust in you. Where, where my mom used to just constantly ridicule me and rub my nose and my shame and my, my mistakes, you probably do the same, won't you, God? We project our junk on God as if, as if, if he is the same way, and he, and he simply isn't. The nature of God, as you get into the Bible and you, you absorb the Bible and you read the Bible and you get in his presence, even like how we were in worship, which was awesome, and we contend for his presence, he starts to reveal to us his nature, and his nature is kind. His nature is gentle. His nature is forgiving. He actually is looking to forgive. He's eager to forgive of our wrongdoings. That is the nature of our God. And so we first need to receive that love so we can give it away. But then how he gives it away is so offensive. It's so difficult. It's so otherworldly. The first thing he does is he remains vulnerable. Jesus remains vulnerable even in the midst of the offense. Jesus remains vulnerable even before the offense happens and he knows it's going to happen. So there's a time when he, you probably just read about this not too long ago in church, depending on where you were in Acts, but Pentecost happens. And before that, Jesus, before Jesus dies, they have a very similar experience like Pentecost when they're in their upper room. At this time, Jesus takes off a towel and puts it around his waist. He gets down on his knees and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. You know, one of the people he washed was Judas. You know what Judas did? He betrayed him and sold him to the Roman Empire so that he'd be hung on a cross. Jesus washed his feet knowing that Judas was going to betray him. And he didn't do it like, oh, I'm going to, in spite, right? Sometimes we love in spite, which isn't loving, right? But he did it out of a broken heart for Judas. Even though you slay me, I will love you. I will love you. Do we love like that? Are we merciful like that? Do we remain vulnerable? You know the song Reckless Love? You guys sing that song in this church? I love that song. The reason why that word is so perfect, I know it gets some debate on God's not reckless. I think he quite is. He's intentionally reckless. He's not like careless or out of control, but he chooses to put his heart on a plate and continue to dish it out to us. Even when we hit it, beat it, abuse it, reject it, he remains loving. That is reckless love in my book. I'm, I've been married for 14 years. I can tell you right now, the biggest struggle for the believer is not to sin as a response, a response of somebody else's sin, right? It's, it's so hard to not sin as a response to somebody else's sin. When my wife hurts my feelings, I'm not usually like, it's all right, baby, I love you so much. I'm like, wall up, defense is drawn, you know, like, right? I mean, it's real life. And it's like, I'm, I'm hurt. I'm, I'm putting up a distance. I, and what do I start to cut off? Vulnerability. I start to make my love conditional. Jesus' love is unconditional. 
but I don't model that. I start to make my love conditional. And all of a sudden, I wonder why there's this, this massive chasm between my wife and I and our intimacy. And I'm like, why do I not feel close to her? Oh, right. I didn't respond well. I didn't love like, like Jesus loves. Even the, in the midst or even knowing an offense was coming. But Jesus remains vulnerable. In Matthew 5, 38 through 44, it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go on one mile, then go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who, per- who persecute you. Is anybody else just really uncomfortable about this passage? I mean, like, this is not what we get modeled from the world. First of all, you have to prove yourself and why you're better than everybody else, just like the Pharisees do. And then if someone hurts you, then you have the right to step on them. You have the right. That's what our culture tells us. You have the right to just put them in their place. Man, if I really told them what I think, man, every time I've done that, I've regretted it. But, but that's what the world promotes. And Jesus, his, his way of being vulnerable is radically, radically different. There's something about him keeping his heart on his sleeve on purpose, saying, I'm still going to extend affection. I'm still going to extend mercy. And it's one thing when someone cuts in line at some event or someone cuts you off on the road when you're driving or something like that. It's a whole other thing when you've been seriously wounded, abused, or attacked. One in three women have been molested or raped now in our culture. So statistics say in this room, women, a lot of you have been mistreated completely unfairly. So if we want to get real, and I'm not trying to be insensitive to your pain. God loves you and he sees you and he cares about your pain. The thing is, is he doesn't want you to draw up walls and then stay in the shelter of pain. He wants to touch it and heal it. So you don't have to carry that around for the rest of your life. But the problem is, is to get free, you actually have to learn how to forgive. But to forgive, you have to choose to be vulnerable like Jesus was towards that person who attacked you. Do you see how deep this is? Like this isn't like cotton candy Christianity. This is heavy stuff, but this is what it means to be transformed in the likeness of Jesus. This is what it means to be the church that looks like the early church. This is what, when you say, when you guys were praying earlier and you're talking about like, we want to impact our city with the revival of God. Revival, is, it takes cost. Revival is not free. It is costly stuff saying, I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to learn to love like Jesus. It is hard work, friends. But you know what Christians do? They do hard stuff. That's what Christians do. If we follow Jesus, if we love Jesus, we're willing to make hard choices and do hard things. So I don't know what your pain is, but if 80% experience a tragic experience, there's about 100 people plus in this room that have serious pain in your life, and God's like, will you be vulnerable in spite of that pain? Will you be vulnerable with God, first and foremost? And then will you be vulnerable to be able to forgive and move forward towards the person that perpetrated against you? Because the second thing Jesus does that blows my mind is not only is he vulnerable, but he forgives. Jesus forgives us 
in the middle of the offense. He is hanging on a cross. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's in Luke 23. In the middle of the offense, he's barely breathing. He's suffocating under the weight of his own body. And he still is moved with compassion, stays vulnerable in his heart towards us who are wounding and hurting him and killing him, and then he forgives us. That is otherworldly. That is not something that comes in the DNA and the fiber of a human being when they're born. We are born in a sin nature that wants to flee and run away from that kind of love. But when we experience the love of Jesus, when we realize that we ourselves are dead in our transgressions, that we ourselves don't deserve vulnerability and forgiveness, yet God extends it to us, it is becoming a more and more natural, which is a supernatural, but that should be the everyday response to learn how to be vulnerable and forgive and love like Jesus. My family's testimony is marked by someone forgiving us in our sin. Like the reason why I know Jesus today and I have a passion for Jesus and his purposes in the earth is because someone forgave my father. In 1981, my dad was 31 years old. Uh, my sister was about two and a half years old and my mom, they all lived in Evansville, Indiana. And my dad was a salesman and they just were doing their, their lives. They did not know Jesus. My dad was a, a fun-loving guy and they would have parties at their house and all kinds of events. And they had a particular party one night and more people showed up than expected. So they ran out of food. So my dad volunteered to go pick up some more food. So he went to a Western Sizzler. Uh, is it even around anymore? I don't think so. It's an old school place. So he's driving to the Western Sizzler to pick up some food. He turns a corner and he hits a family riding bicycles. There's a dad with a baby on the back of the bike, and then there's a mom. He hits both of them. The dad's bike gets caught underneath my dad's car, and he's so drunk and in shock, he doesn't stop for about 1,200 feet. He just drags the child. He immediately gets put into jail that night. The next morning, my grandfather comes to bail him out, and my dad says, so what, what's the condition of the family? What's going on? Because my dad's clueless. He's kind of isolated in the, the jail cell. Because the, the father's in critical, the mother's in serious condition, and the baby died. Immediately, a spirit of depression fell on my dad. He never experienced depression before, but I mean, it was instant. Just fell on him. And he started carrying it. And he I cannot believe, like, what is happening to my world? Like, I'm, a, I'm an okay guy. I'm not that bad of a guy. I made one mistake. Doesn't matter. So he posts bail, and he has six months before the trial date. So in those six months, he moves with my mom and my sister, and they move to Madison, Indiana, where my grandparents were living, because everybody in our town knew who he was, and everybody hated him. Hated him. Have you heard of Mad Mothers Against Drunk Driving? That started in Evansville, Indiana, as a response to my dad's accident. My dad's picture was on all their material. Their videos were all about his crime. When I went in ninth grade to high school, and I was sitting in ninth grade watching a Don't Drink and Drive video, it was a video about my father in my public school. And so my parents are now in Evansville, Indiana, to get out of that environment because it People, I mean, people would you know, flick him off, cuss at him, yell at him, spit at him, everything. And the day before, he was a well-received citizen. 
and overnight just despised by society. So we're in Madison, Indiana. My dad had made a list of anyone that could help him and quickly found out no one could help him. <laughs> no one. And then finally my parents were like, well, or my grandparents were like, you should talk to our priest. They were Episcopalians and there was this priest that they loved that was at, at their church and he's like, you should talk to our priest. And he's like, hey, if he can help me, sure, because I'm, I'm totally desperate. And so he shows up to the priest and the priest has the audacity to say, you know, Randy, he's like, you actually have a bigger problem than what you're facing. And my dad cusses out this priest. <laughs> how dare you say that? Do you have any idea how I just ruined not just my life, but my family's life? I just ruined the rest of my life. And you have, to, you have the audacity to tell me I have a bigger problem? He says, yeah, I guess I do. He says, what's your relationship like with Jesus? My dad says, nothing. I don't know what you're talking about. So he shares the gospel with my dad, and in the kindness and the mercy of God, it was, my dad would say it was a small yes. It wasn't a big yes, but he in his heart, smallest yes, he said, I know I, this is what I need. I need a relationship with God, and he accepts Jesus. And I, one of the things, I, when I hear my dad tell this story, it's, it's his favorite part is he says that God honors even the smallest of yeses. So if you were in this room, and you're in a journey trying to figure out who is God? Where is my place? Does God love me? Do I, what's my purpose? What's my value? All these major question marks over your life. I'm telling you right now, God loves you. His name is Jesus. He is pursuing you. And he will honor even your smallest yes towards him. So I want to encourage you today. Let today be a day where you even take the smallest of yes. Let's take it today. Because God is pursuing you. So my dad accepts Jesus and then within that small little yes, within about two weeks, he like deep dives in the deep end to where all he reads is the Bible. All he watches is Christian television. All he listens to is Christian music. And he basically like puts himself in this isolation chamber because he's so depressed and discouraged about what he's done and the trial coming up and everything else that he lives in this bubble. Well, time goes by. It's now time for sentencing date. And he gets sentenced to 16 years in prison. Medium security prison, everybody on his block that he, he's in were murderers. Uh, his cellmate was a, a sheriff of a town that killed his mother-in-law and shot his wife. So he's in this, this area of just broken people who have made destructive decisions. And my dad's thrown in the midst of this. Well, in Indiana, they give you time half, half time for good behavior. So the 16 years goes down to eight years just if he doesn't get in fights and cause problems. And he didn't cause fights and their problems. And then he actually ends up working with MAD for five years. So he only spends two years in prison, but he becomes a, a public speaker for MAD and he travels for five years speaking at colleges and high schools and all kinds of different societal groups talking about not drinking and driving. When he gets out of jail though, he is still depressed, still, just, still very discouraged and he's having the hardest time finding a job. Well, he has one friend who's a not a believer, but he owns a used car dealership, and he says, I'll let you work for me. It's a little ironic because part of my dad's sentencing is that he lost his license for eight years, so he's selling cars he's not allowed to drive. So they'd be like, you don't want to drive? No, you go right ahead. I'll take the passenger seat. You know, he doesn't want to tell them, like, it's against the law for me to drive. So he's working at this used car dealership, and he, he actually hates the job. It's not very satisfying or fulfilling or anything, and it's, it's difficult to sell used cars. And so he's not loving it. And then he finds out this, this specific Saturday, he's sitting down reading the morning newspaper, and on the front page says, Randy Reed sued for $6 million. He doesn't get a phone call from a, a lawyer or anyone. He finds out that he's being sued for $6 million from the family 
And this is three and a half years later, and he's, and he's finding out on the front page of the paper. So he is extra depressed. He is extra discouraged. And he's like, man, what are we going to do? So he goes and he grabs the only other believer at the car dealership, and, he, and the guy's in the middle of a sale, and my dad's like, I need to talk to you right now. And the guy's like, all right. He's like, apologizes to the clients, and he just leaves. And he goes out in the parking lot, and he's like, this is what's going on in my life. He I already knew some of the story, but he told him about the $6 million. He says, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm at the very brink of, of collapse here, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, everything. And he's like, okay, let's pray. So this guy reaches out, grabs my dad's hand, and they start walking and swinging arms, and they walk the entire car dealership for 20 minutes. And this guy's praying, and my dad's agreeing. And this guy's praying, and my dad's agreeing. And my dad didn't say a word. He's just like, yeah, amen, do it, God. Yes, Lord. Heal him, God. Heal me. Help, help me. Help me with the money, God. Help me with everything. I need help, you know? And they're just praying and agreeing. And at the end of it, they're about to walk back in the dealership. And my dad says it feels like the, all the weight of the world has just been lifted off his shoulders. And I don't know if you've ever met with Jesus in that way in your pain, but it's nice when it lifts off our shoulders. And this guy says, oh, hold on. He says, what? God just spoke to me. He, what did he say? He said, you're going to have a miracle in your life. A miracle in my life? Yeah, you're going to have a miracle, and it's going to happen today. Awesome. I'm going to get a new job. No, no. They're going to drop the $6 million lawsuit. No, God's so big, I'll get a new job, and they'll drop the $6 million lawsuit. My dad is beaming, smile ear to ear, so excited, goes back in, goes back to work. This is at 10 a.m. in the morning. By 5.30-ish in the afternoon, my dad had forgotten about the prayer time, forgotten about the miracle, and managed to take all the way to the world and pull it right back on his shoulders. Have you ever done that? My dad chose to do that. He's super discouraged. And then because he, my, because he lost his license, my mom has to pick him up from his job. And my mom is notoriously late. God bless her. And so she's late picking him up. So he is extra grouchy. And if you knew my dad today, this is always the weirdest part because my dad is one of the most lovable, just amazing men of God I've, I've ever known in my life. But this is early on in the journey with him. And he is grouchy and angry and depressed. And so he's like, you're late. And she's like, I'm sorry, you know. He's like, we're going home. And she's like, well, we need to go by the store. He's like, okay, well, we're going to go to the store and you're going right in there and I'm staying in the car. And they went the day before to get a pregnancy test when they were pregnant with me. Holla, what? Um, so, they, but, but they didn't have enough money to buy the pregnancy test. So he's like, we know where it is. It's back right-hand corner in the pharmacy area. You're going, I'm staying in here. Make it quick. And she's like, all right, chill out, you know? So she, they get to, the, they get to the, 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 it's like a little grocery store that has a pharmacy in it. They get to the grocery store and they park and my dad gets out of the car. So she's like, all right, well, do whatever you want, you know? Gets out and she starts following him and he's walking ahead and she says his shoulders are shrouched, uh, kind of leaning over and he's kind of stomping in and he's like looking just ridiculous and he's grumbling to himself and he just looks mean and angry and hurt and all that, all that kind of stuff. And he's just walking in, just totally discouraged, totally defeated. And the first thing he does is when he walks in the store, he goes to the front aisle and he goes all the way to the far left front corner. Complete opposite corner of where we know where the pregnancy test is. And he walks all the way down and he goes to the farthest aisle and he turns and he starts walking up the furthest far left aisle. He walks halfway up, he stops, he turns around, walks back up to the main aisle, goes over one aisle, turns, walks up the next aisle. Halfway up, stops, turns, walks back to the front aisle and starts doing this over and over again. 
My mom is believing he's actually had a mental breakdown. She's like, I think I need to call maybe 911, take him to the hospital. Like, this is it. He's reached his mental limit, and we need to, like, put him in an institution. And she can hear him talking, and all he keeps saying is, no, that's not right. No, that, that's not right. No, that, that's not right. And she says, finally, she's about to smack him. Like, snap out of it, you know? Like, give him a big what for, you know? And before she can do it, he almost runs into this person shopping in one of the, in the grocery aisles. And it's this woman, her back's to my dad, but she has a baby in one of those, like, old-school papoose carriers where it's, like, on the front, but the head hangs over the shoulder. And then my dad starts petting this baby's head to the person he doesn't know. So he's like, oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, she's like, oh, he's lost his mind. Oh, this is such a disappointment. Oh. So she's like trying to get him, like, honey, we don't touch other people's babies without permission. And my dad goes, no, honey, look, this is the most beautiful baby I've ever seen, ever. So then my mom looks, in right mind, not crazy, goes, you're right. This is the most beautiful child. And my mom starts gooing and guying and petting this stranger's baby. Well, obviously, it was probably like 10 seconds, but it felt like an eternity. And the mother recognizes someone's touching my child, and she turns around. And out of nowhere, my dad goes, oh, my God, are you Sandra Miller? It was the woman he had hit three and a half years earlier, and this is the first time he'd seen her since he was sentenced to prison. And she goes, I know who you are, Randy Reed. And my dad said that when he was in jail, <clears throat> he'd practiced pretty much his entire time there writing the most sincere and authentic apology that he could. And he revised it over and over again. Oh, that's just not good enough. And I mean, he really wanted her to know that he meant it. it just, he realizes just how horrible of a person he is and how horrible of a thing he did. And so he had memorized this. And so he's getting ready to start to speak. And he says he starts fumbling over his words. Just in the moment, he's like, oh, it's not coming. And then she hushes him down. So he's like, okay, she's going to let me have it. And I'm going to take whatever she wants to say. I deserve every bit of it. Like, she can say the most horrific things, and it's yes to whatever she says. And she goes, I have something to tell you. And he's like, okay, yeah, please. Goes, I need to let you know something. Yeah, okay. This morning, I was spending time with Jesus, and he told me I had to find you and tell you that I forgive you. What? Because I forgive you. And even still, all these years, I get emotional because it was so healing. My dad begins to weep. My mom begins to weep. Sandra begins to weep. And they embrace each other. And there's this beautiful new baby that they'd had since the accident in the middle of them. My dad had killed their previous child. And they're hugging around this baby and they're celebrating how God can change hearts. How God can, can break down walls and allow us to forgive even the most cruel people. So they sit on the floor in the middle of the vegetable aisle of the grocery store for three hours. And they share each other's stories of what God's done in the last three and a half years. The Miller family came to know Jesus as a result of this accident. And the Reed family came to know Jesus as a result of this accident. I'm telling you right now, the worst thing in your life, the biggest pain that you've caused or somebody else has caused, God can work for good. Do not keep it out of his reach. Let him touch those places of pain so that you can learn to love like him again, that your heart can come alive again, 
This is what God longs for us to be and long for us to do. And so they weep and they cry and they share testimonies and it's incredible and they're about to leave. And she goes, I need you to do me one more thing. Goes, yeah, anything, what? She goes, I need you to pray for my husband, Steve. If he knew that I did this, he would kill me. He is so not where I am in this journey. Absolutely, we will pray for Steve. The next day, my parents are at the mall and they're out with their, their closest couple friends. And like couple friends do, the dudes go off and do dude things. The gals go off and do gal things. And they join back together after about two hours of shopping. And, and my mom's like, you will not believe who I ran into. And my dad's like, who? She goes, Sandra Miller. What? Like, why in the world would God not when My mom still lived in that town. So for three and a half years, even my dad was in prison, like, how we never ran into them? And then here, two days in a row, why would God do that? My, God, my mom's like, well, let me tell you. She's like, what? So, well, after Sandra went home, she put the baby down and the, and the grocery down, the phone rang, and she picked up the phone, and it's a guy named Joe. And the cool thing about Joe is Joe, prior to the accident, was a close family friend of the Reeds and a close family friend of the Millers. And he never told either family that he knew either one. He was a believer in Jesus, and he was a paraplegic because he was hit by a drunk driver. So if anybody had authority or relationship to speak into any any family in regards to this situation, Joe did. So even God used Joe's pain to be able to be a place of authority in other people's pain for, for healing and freedom. So Joe calls, they do small talk, and Joe's like, hey, I, I'm gonna cut to the chase, Sandra. He's like, please know that my heart is to love you. And this is gonna be very bold for me to say. He's like, but I was just spending time with Jesus, and he told me I had to call you this very moment and tell you, you have to forgive Randy Reed. She goes, Joe, I just did. And and so she tells him the story. Joe's crying. She's crying all over again. They have like this awesome conversation. Hangs up the phone, turns around, and her husband Steve's right behind her. And he heard the whole conversation. Sandra says that the one and only time she actually was genuinely physically afraid of her own husband. Because he started walking towards her and he had this like very like serious face on his look. And so she started kind of backpedaling. And then he finally goes, as he goes, he kind of goes down to a knee and then to both knees. And he begins weeping on the floor. And she goes, oh. And in her mind, she says, I would have rather him hit me than for me to break his heart and betray him. So she's over on the ground, putting her arms around. I'm so sorry, baby. Please forgive me. I'm not trying to betray you. I just, I'm trying to obey God. Please forgive me. He goes, you don't understand. He goes, what? She goes, this morning, I was spending time with Jesus. And he told me, I too have to forgive Randy Reed. When my dad heard that in the middle of a food court in a mall, the spirit of depression broke in an instant. Something he'd been carrying for three and a half years from the very moment the accident occurred, God immediately healed and delivered because someone was willing to be as audacious as to love like Jesus. To be willing to be vulnerable and to forgive even when the offender doesn't deserve it. This is what it means to be the church of Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what you're signing up to be as a follower of God is you're saying, I'm laying down my rights that the world tells me I have and I'm going to pick up my cross and I'm going to love like Jesus. This is what God is inviting us into this morning. I pray as we come to close here that you would feel just this challenge from the Lord. And this is the prophetic word I felt like God had for you guys is you cannot be a victor and a victim at the same time. So some people you've been victimized and it's real and I'm not trying to minimize your pain at all. I'm not trying to belittle it or make you feel like you have to push it aside. I'm saying deal with it. Let God touch it so that you don't have to stay in this victim place and you can move to a victor place of overcoming the pains of this world. And then you get to extend that same sort of victory to those who are also at fault or in pain themselves. 
That's what we do as the church, is we extend the love and the mercy and the grace of God to the world around us. But we can't do that if we haven't received it or operated it or let it be worked out in our own lives ourselves. And that's what God wants to do this morning. So what I've actually done, is I've asked, I've asked uh, I'm sorry, Chris, Chris. I'm tired, I apologize. I asked Chris to come up and play because this is the most important part of the service. This right here is the most important part of the service. This is response time. Hearing a good word that's biblical and applying it are very different things. In my church, we're talkative. So I'll be preaching, I'll hear, mm, amen. Good word, good word, Pat. You know, and I love it because it fires me up. But good word isn't enough. It's what do I do about this word? Knowledge is understanding something. Wisdom is applying that knowledge to your life. We want to be wise men and women of God in this room. So if there's a place where you need to repent to somebody, let's start this morning. If there's a place that you need to forgive somebody, let's start this morning. If you've contributed to the world's narrative of pointing fingers and jumping in people's boat to gossip or slander, this morning's the time to stop that. We operate in the opposite spirit. We speak life into things, not death. That's what believers do. That's what followers of Jesus do. And so I'm gonna invite you to stand. And we're gonna have uh, a prayer team. If you're on the prayer team, come on up to receive people. And if the band wants to come on up, come on up. But we're just gonna have the, the band kind of lead us out in just one song. But this is, this is where the real work happens as, as Christians. This is where we do hard stuff. And we say, God, what does it look like for me to respond to you in a way that produces healing in my life and freedom for other people's lives? So I'm gonna pray. And then whoever wants to be on the prayer team with me, I'll be up here. I would love to pray with you. But we wanna see God get, set people free today. And there are people in this room that need freedom. They need healing from wrongs in their life. So Jesus, we just say, we wanna love like you. We wanna love like Jesus. Would you come and meet us in our places of struggle? Would you come and meet us in our places of pain? God, we, we, don't, we don't minimize or try to, to justify people's wrong actions, but we say, God, we don't want to live imprisoned by them for the rest of our lives, but we want to be set free to be able to love like Jesus. So, so much have you loved. Those who've been loved much have forgiven much because they understand the forgiveness that God has given us. So God, may we see with the lens of heaven, may we see with the eyes of Jesus how you were moved with compassion, even in the midst of offense, that you remain vulnerable and that you choose to forgive. We love you, God. Thank you that you meet with us. Thank you that you can change us and thank you that you can heal us. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this message encouraged you today. For more information about Burning Hearts Church and our mission, please head to burningheartsfargo.com. If you are in the Fargo area, we'd love to have you join us for one of our Sunday services at 9 or 1045 a.m. Have a great rest of your week.